Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. I I hope that's a a sweet spot for you in worship like it is for me. you know, my prayer when we get together every week is that this space is a little bit like an oasis for you, because I don't know what the rest of your week is like, your interactions with friends, classes, family, the other stuff that you've got going on, but a place that we really get to come together and just be with the Lord, see what he has to say through opening his word, uh, be in sweet spaces of worship where the Holy Spirit has a chance to encourage you, nudge you toward forgiveness, rebuke you, whatever it is that he needs to do in this space. I hope that's true for you. Um, If you weren't around last week, uh, well, first of all, uh, there's a special holiday, and I think you all know what that is. Tomorrow is my anniversary, so I'm just going to make you all aware. I can only assume, I can only assume that's why you're dressed up. So, um, no, anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about, last week was Moses part one, tonight is Moses part two. But to to start walking toward the text, um, I... uh, just as a, as a human, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. This is a safe place, okay? I don't work out all the time. I go in these phases where I'm super diligent about working out and taking care of my body, and then other phases, hey, Gandalf, um, where <laughs> it's not distracting. It's not distracting at all. Um, I go through these other phases where I don't, and I'm currently in one of those phases where I don't, just, just full transparency, okay? But in these phases where I do, one of the things that I really like to do is run, but I hate to start running. I really, like when I'm in running shape, I really enjoy running, but getting back into running shape is the thing that keeps me from running right now, okay? Because this is the way that it starts. It's been a long time since I've been in good running shape. So if I did that tomorrow, if I went out for a two or three mile run, this is the way that it would go. And I know because I've done this many times, been like, you know what, I'm getting back into it. This is the way that it would go. First quarter mile to the half mile would feel like, like I am in my prime. Like squirrels running beside me, birds flying alongside me, lungs full of air. And then right around that half mile mark, between half mile, three quarter mile, there will be a shift in my body, and in my brain, and it will be as if I can hear an audible voice in my head. I'm not joking when I say this. There will be an audible, almost audible voice in my head that will repeat four words over and over and over again right at that half-mile mark from then on, and these, they are these four words. I can't do this, okay? Because my lungs will start to feel bad. My sides will start to ache. My knees start to hurt. There's like that pain that I have to run through sometimes. Again, right when, I, when I'm getting back into running shape, and it will be like, I, I can't do this. And then you'll hit the one mile mark, and it's like, I can't do this. And then the, the mile and a half mark, and, and it just keeps getting louder. I cannot do this thing. I cannot do this thing. I do not have it within me. It's not even a physical thing for me. Running isn't. It's purely like this mental thing of my brain and my body starting to argue with each other, being like, this just isn't possible. Why are we even trying? There's so many easier things we could be doing right now. Why are we even doing this together? I don't know if you can relate to that or not all right, in the physical exercise world, but I know you can relate to those four words. I know you can, because I know you have been there somewhere in your life. When you watch your parents' marriage dissolve, and you hear these words in your head that are like, I, I cannot do this. I can't take this anymore. 
I have really, really, really good friends whose kids or whose siblings have been through really difficult paths with mental health, and I hear those words come out of them. I cannot do this anymore. I can't. I cannot walk one step further down this road. Maybe there are those spaces in your life where you can relate to that, where you're like, this is just too hard. I cannot do this thing. God, I do not have the power to accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish in my life. I can't do it. Can't. Well, tonight, um, I, I would like to maybe just drop the idea in your brain that when it comes to the life of faith, when it comes to us following Jesus, the lines between I can't and I won't are pretty blurry. Uh, And I hope tonight is an encouragement to you when we look at the path that Moses takes through this. So again, if you weren't around last week, let me bring you a little bit into the life of Moses. Um, He is born as a Hebrew slave, okay, but gets adopted into the royal Egyptian household. So he ends up truly, it's a crazy story, He, he ends up becoming a prince of Egypt under the authority of the pharaoh. And the pharaoh is like the super, I mean, he is the superpower in the world. As a matter of fact, the Egyptians believed that the pharaoh himself, as a man, was actually partly deity. They worshiped him. And so, you know, what we talked about last week was that as Moses grew up, he's conflicted. I mean, racially, he's a Hebrew, which is the the slave race that is there, but he's been given all the privilege of an Egyptian. And he sees a Hebrew being abused, and he kills the Egyptian who's doing it, and then he freaks out and runs away, runs away to Midian, to the desert. And that's where he spends 40 years, you guys. He's not been exiled, but because he's a murderer, he can't go back because <laughs> these people are looking for him, all right? And so that's, that's Moses' life. He commits this sin, and he has to wear that sin. He has to leave and go to Midian, and he lives there in that place. And in there, he meets his wife, Zipporah, uh, his, his father-in-law then, uh, who is Jethro, sort of becomes, he's a wise man who becomes a mentor to Moses, and, and God uses that 40 years to do some things in Moses' life. But you know, whether you've been in church your whole life or not, you know the next part of the story because you've, you've seen it somewhere. He, he, Moses meets God in a burning bush. He sees a bush that's on fire on the side of a mountain while he's shepherding sheep, and he's like, that's weird. That bush isn't burning out. A bush that's on fire shouldn't stay on fire indefinitely. So he goes to to try to understand what's going on, to investigate, and there the God of the universe wants to have a conversation with him. And God says to him, hey, Moses, I'm actually going to send you back to Pharaoh. Now, Stay with me for a second here. I'm going to send you back to that place where you were scared to stay because you murdered someone, and you're going to have to go back and face that, number one. But God also tells him in that moment, I have heard the cries of my people. I know they're suffering, and I'm going to send you back to confront Pharaoh to rescue them. Moses, the murderer, the guy who had to flee the country. So what's difficult is this back and forth between Moses and God takes place in Exodus 3 and 4, and it would be so much scripture for me to read to you. And so instead, I've condensed it. This doesn't do it justice, but I want, I want you to hear the back and forth because it's amazing. And so if you have time this week, you can go back and read Exodus 3 and 4, but I'm just going to give you sort of the Cliff Notes version here of what that looks like, okay? So Exodus 3, 7 through 10, God says what I just said to Moses. I've seen the oppression of my people. I am going to save them, and I'm sending you to do it, Moses. And Moses responds to God, who am I 
Like, who, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? God, do you know who you're asking? And God says, uh-uh, I will be with you. It's me, me. I will be with you. I'm the one going with you, he says in 3.12. Moses responds to him, okay, but if they ask me who you are, I, I won't know what to say. Like, God, that's great, but I don't know who you are. Who are you? And God responds to him in 3.15. Tell them I am who I am. In other words, he's like, adjectives don't even cut it. I am, I am. That's who I am. I'm the God of your ancestors, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And Moses, in the beginning of chapter 4, says, because God goes off on that for a while with him. This is who I am. And Moses, in 4 verse 1, says, what if they don't believe me? What if they won't listen to me? And God says, well, then I'll give you miraculous signs to prove that I'm with you. And he goes and he shows him which miraculous signs he will give him. Over, like, there's a bunch of different stuff that, that God has Moses do in that moment. And he says, these are the miraculous signs that I'll have you do. I will even give you miraculous signs to prove that the God of the universe is with you. And here's where I really want you to lock in with me. Chapter 4, but Moses pleaded with the Lord. Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied. My words get tangled. And God responds, go, and I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to speak. And here we have it. We finally get down to Moses' final argument. Lord, please send anyone else. And the Lord, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And in the verses to follow, 414, God actually assigns Aaron to be the spokesperson to go with Moses in that. Do you hear what I was talking about, those four words that are coming out of Moses' mouth? I can't do this. I can't. I can't do this, God. I am not the one. I am not the chosen vessel here. Even though God has said, you know what? I'll give you signs. You know what? I'll be with you. You know what? I'll tell you what to say. You know what? You don't have to worry. And Moses is like, please just send someone else. Not your guy. I'm not your guy. And God says, I think you are. Actually, I think you are the guy. Now, the actual word here is super interesting. Uh, where is it? Where he says, oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I've never been and I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. The actual Hebrew in the, uh, the, the text that's there, the actual Hebrew word means I am heavy of mouth. You, you familiar with that? You ever have to give up and get a presentation and you're like, oh, I, I am heavy of mouth. It doesn't feel like I can lift my tongue. All right? So scholars have had a heyday with this. What was going on with Moses in this situation? Is, he, is this a, a physical ailment? Did he have a stuttering problem? I mean, did he have a, some sort of a speech impediment? That's possible. Some scholars believe that that's what he's talking about here. That Moses literally was saying, I don't think I'll be able to get the words out if you send me in front of Pharaoh. Some people think, though, it wasn't a physical impairment. Some scholars think that this was something that was going on inside of him that there was just a deep insecurity of not being able to speak. Uh, this, uh, this is super nerdy, I know, but when I was researching this, the Egyptians have a parable called the Egyptian tale of the eloquent peasant that is preserved from 1850 B.C. Not 1850 like, you know, 100-ish years ago, 1850 like 4,000 years ago, all right? So in Egyptian culture, rhetoric, like this, this persuasion 
was held up really, really high. It was very important. And we know that Moses was raised in an Egyptian household. So if you're getting ready to tune out on me, come right back, okay? Because this is what that means. He went to school and had to give persuasive speeches. That certainly was a part of his schooling. So what if he sucked at it? That's my question. Like, what if he went to these classes and was terrible at it? What if this was super embarrassing? What if he got up in front of people and just froze? What if he was the worst person in the group project every time? And, that, and this is the insecurity that he has where he's like, I was made fun of. I was mocked for this. I could not talk in front of people. I couldn't, no one could understand me. Everybody made fun of me. And then later on, God comes back to him and is like, hey, you're the guy to speak to Pharaoh. And he's like, I am not that guy. I don't, so maybe that's it. Maybe it was some sort of a speech impediment. Maybe there was something going on in, internally with him. I don't know. Or maybe it's none of the above. Maybe what God was asking was just so difficult that like, this, was, this was just his excuse to throw out there because he didn't want to do it. Oh, Lord, please send anyone else, anyone else who isn't me. I don't know, you guys. I don't know which one of those it is. It's one of those three. Either way, we can interpret this all the same. Moses, whether it was a legitimate thing, whether it was an internal insecurity, he did not feel like he had the tools in the toolbox to make it happen with Pharaoh. So this lends us to the question tonight, if we're talking about a turning point for Moses here, where he goes, even though he is going begrudgingly, God is dragging him to Pharaoh. What about you? But you and me, in these spaces where God pulls you towards something, and the response in your head is, I cannot, God, I can't do this thing. I can't. I need you to, to have this just ringing in your ears tonight, all right? This phrase, repeat after me, my limitations are not God's limitations. One more time, my limitations are not God's limitations. Yeah. Let that sink into your brain. Because again, remember what I said earlier? That line between I can't do this and I won't do this are really blurry where those sit in between. I was reminded of another passage. This is a moment that happens with Jesus and the disciples. Perhaps you recognize it. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So this is, this is a normal day in Jesus' ministry, all right? Because he's doing healings, giant crowds flock. They just they want to see the Jesus show. He's at the height of his popularity here, okay? Thousands of people coming to see him. And that evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. But we've only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Okay, we learn later at the end uh, that they tallied 5,000 heads of households, 5,000 men there. So when you add women and children, 10 to 12,000 people probably at least we're talking about there. So in the beginning of this, when they say, hey, we've got five loaves of bread, Jesus and we have two fish, and there are 12,000 people here. We don't have the food to give them. 
Bring him here, he said, and then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples, who distributed it to the people. And they all ate. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up, pay attention to this, 12 basketfuls of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. Okay, now... What do the disciples do? What do the disciples do the moment that they have the problem? This conflict comes up. We got 12,000 people here-ish. We don't know how to feed them. Jesus, let's, get it, let's send them out to the villages. They can go to the restaurants. They can go buy their own food. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you feed them. So what do they do? They run the numbers. Uh, five loaves, three fish. I did the math, okay? Let me see here if I've got it. 12,000 people, five loaves of bread, sorry, two fish. That is, per person, one twenty-four hundredth of a piece of bread, okay? And one six-thousandth of a fish, all right? Not filling, all right? So I look at that, and I'm like, I don't want one twenty-four thousandth of a piece of bread. That's what the disciples do. They look at the math. They're like, Jesus, the math doesn't work. By human math, they are correct. It doesn't work. But you guys, kingdom math is different. When the God of the universe is standing in front of you, human math doesn't work anymore, Jesus is like, your math isn't, it isn't based on the same rules anymore because I can multiply it. And when the guy in front of you can multiply food, you don't have to do the division anymore. You understand? When Moses looks at his own life and is like, God, you don't understand. I can't speak good. I don't talk good, God. And God's like, no, no, no. You don't understand. You're running the math in a way that the math doesn't work anymore. Kingdom rules don't work the same way human rules work. And when I can empower you, Moses, then you can do something different than you've done. It's not going to look like those persuasive classes that you took back in Egypt. It's not going to look like that because I'm going to be the spokesperson speaking through you, Moses. It's not going to look like this, disciples, because I'm going to be the one multiplying food. You don't know who you're standing in front of right now. That's one lesson that I love with this. Human math and kingdom math ain't the same. But the second piece that I love for this is the 12 baskets of leftovers. That number stand out to you at all? 12 disciples, 12... Jesus knew what he was doing and the amount of food he was multiplying, right? So what a crazy object lesson that every disciple has a basket full of food, more than they started with, to walk back with at the end. What do you think that walk was like? 12,000 people cover a lot of territory. So you picture yourself after being like, Jesus, I don't know what we're going to do. We can't feed all these people. And he's like, I can feed all these people. And then you have to walk half a mile with a basket full of bread and fish, and all of you come back together, and it's like, huh, pretty good object lesson here, Jesus. Pretty beautiful lesson of the leftovers that's buried in here. Moses does the same thing. God needs me to convince Pharaoh. God needs me to be a persuasive speaker. God needs me to be eloquent. You guys know he doesn't. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need Moses to be any of those things. He just needs him to be available. He just needs him to open his hands and say, yes, I'll be the one. Speak through me. I will walk to Egypt. That is all God needs of Moses is obedience. I said it several weeks ago that the Jesus life is a surrendered life. All God needs of Moses is to say yes, to surrender in that moment to what he's asking him to do. That's all he wants. Well, let me ask you this question. 
Why do we have limitations to begin with? Because you might look at that and say, well, yeah, Ben, but you don't know. I, I've got, I grew up poor. I don't have any resources. Or I don't talk good. I've got the same, I've got these other handicaps. I have mental health stuff. I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with depression. I've got this other physical ailment. You don't know what's going on with me. You're right. I don't. But listen, all of you were born with some form of unfairness. All of you. All of us in the room, you guys, there are some pets that live better lives than us. You know that, right? Truly, that are better off than we are. Is that fair? No, it is not, in fact, fair. But we live in a world of unfair. And so if you compare yourself in this room or beyond it, you will find other people who have it far, far worse than you. Way worse. And you say, yeah, but I have all these physical ailments. I promise we could find somebody who has more and who has a worse life than you do. And I promise, too, that I could find someone who has it easier than you. The world is, in fact, we talked about it last week, broken, decayed, crumbling. And so you can look at that and you say, well, I don't like my limitations. I don't like that this world isn't fair. But they're there for you, just as they are to me. The question that we have to ask, I think, looks a little bit like this. When we're trying to understand those limitations in the context of God, what do you fill in the blank with? I am too what for God to use me? I'm too slow, too sinful, too broken, too tired, too busy, too poor. I don't know. What's in that blank for you? If you don't have an answer to that, this is a great question for you this week or this month or this year for you to process on. God, how have I filled in this blank? I'm too blank for God to use me. That should be one that you should know because that's a lie that has been following you and you should understand it. You should understand it because your limitations, my friends, are not God's limitations. Moses' inability to speak didn't limit the way that God wanted to use him. And I I don't have time to tell the rest of Moses' story, but many of you know it. He he goes on for God to use him in an unbelievable way. He becomes one of the patriarchs of the faith. He becomes a model for faith, actually, for us. This guy who falters in the beginning, who I have used for two negative turning points, I could use for many, many positive ones also. Unbelievable. But what are your limitations? How do you see those? The cool thing is, you guys, God's standard operating procedure, I like using that phrase, his standard default operating procedure looks like this. There's a bunch of different verses. I'll just give you three. He loves to use the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. That's 1 Corinthians. He loves to use the unschooled and ordinary. In Acts 4, when Peter and John start to preach, everybody is amazed for that reason because they look at them and they're like, wait a minute, these are two unschooled, ordinary dudes. How are they talking with this authority and with this knowledge? Well, it's because it's not them talking in Acts 4. It's God speaking through them. Or Paul, for that matter, Paul, who had, uh, well, we're not even sure. He had this thorn in the flesh that he begged God to take away. We know that his eyesight was failing him. Uh, When he's writing one of his epistles, he talks about how large he has to write the letters because his eyes are failing him. We know that he struggled from a little bit of, I, I don't know if it was depression, but just all of the opposition through Paul's life was beginning to wear on him. 
or singleness, like he, he was alone for a very, very long period of time, maybe part of that. Whatever it is, he begged God to take it away from him, and God's response to him is this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness, not in your strength, in your weakness, Paul. In other words, yes, I know that thorn hurts, but it doesn't hurt so much that I can't use it, even that for my glory, Paul. Your limitations are not God's limitations, my friends. He can and will look beyond them. And if you, don't, if you doubt that God can use you, it, hear me. If you doubt that God can use you, it's not really self-doubt. You're not doubting you. You're doubting God. His ability to work through you, his ability to multiply fish, his ability to speak through Moses, his ability to get beyond that thing, that barrier for you where you're like, I don't think that could be me. I just don't think that could be me. Well, Moses kind of thought the same thing. So what about your strengths? What about your strengths? Because all I've really been talking about are your weaknesses, those barriers. What about your strengths? Well, they're not that great. Sorry. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Paul was the only one, really, of the apostles who had a, a resume. He had a really great resume incredibly smart dude. I've talked about that before up here. But even that, he says, uh, let me quote it. He says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, what was to my profit, in other words, all of these things that I really thought were my strengths, that I thought God could use, this resume that I brought to the table, he says, I now consider rubbish, garbage, compared to knowing Christ. I've shared this, it's been a while since I've shared this, but I I love that. That's sort of a Bible euphemism. That Greek word rubbish or garbage, it actually means uh, used food, literally. Process that for just a second. What is used food? Well, I've got two options, okay? It's either those leftovers that you scrape off of your plate into the garbage. That's either used food, or it's the food that runs through your body out into a toilet, okay? Either way, it's stuff you don't want to touch, okay? I don't know which one you want to interpret that is, but Paul is saying, my resume, which I thought was great, all of my strengths, I now consider them garbage, used food, feces, compared to what it means to know Jesus. God doesn't need you to be that strong. He doesn't need you to be that talented. He doesn't need you to be that great of a singer. He doesn't need you to be that eloquent of a speaker. He just needs open hands to do his work. And he's calling you the same way he's calling Moses. Maybe not to overthrow Pharaoh, but to bring revival in this world and redemption and restoration that he wants to see it. I'm talking to you, Christian, individually, not just you encounter as a group. He wants to use you to bring revival to this campus, to your family, to your friend circles. He wants to bring healing and restoration and redemption into this world. And he wants to use you to do it. That message is clear throughout all of Scripture. And the moment that we say, but I can't, I can't, I can't, because it's, I, I can't do this thing, we become obsessed with ourselves. There is so much self in our culture, from, from hate yourself to believe in yourself to celebrate yourself. To, listen, the consistent theme of Scripture is really, when it comes to self, is die to yourself. 
All Jesus needs you to do is to lay that thing on the altar so that he can let it die and transform it into what he needs it to be. He doesn't need Moses to be 10% better at public speaking. He just needs Moses to put himself on the altar and be done and say, you know what, God? Whatever you want to do with me, I'll do it. And you know what God will do with him? He'll bring Egypt to its knees. When Moses tried to do this thing on his own strength last week, like, he tried, <laughs> he tried to, to end the oppression of the Hebrew people by killing an Egyptian. And do you know what that got him? Forty years in Midian. He had to run away. He didn't make a dent in Egypt and the oppression that was happening with the Hebrew people. But when God says, no, 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 my turn, I need you to come back weak and willing I don't need you strong. I don't need you competent. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Die to self. Die to self. Die to self so that God can do something beautiful through you. He will take that stuff that you thought he couldn't use and he will use it for his redemption. Restorative story in your classes, in your family, in your apartment, in the places that you call home. You guys, in my own life, I hear that voice all the time. Truly, I mean this. I struggle with insecurity. And so when it comes to raising six kids, I hear that I can't do this voice. I'm not the guy for this. When I see the needs in my wife, like, what she needs from me. There are peace times in our marriage where it has just been like, God, I, don't, I, don't, I think I'm the wrong guy. I think she married the wrong person. I think I am the wrong guy to accomplish this. When I see stuff with my staff, there's that insecurity, that voice that sneaks in that's like, you can't do this. You can't do this. And I come to the Lord and I'm like, Lord, and he reminds me of what I'm preaching tonight. I have to preach it back to myself. I don't need you to be more talented. I don't need you to have a deeper well and just be stronger. I just need your open hands to follow me where I'm leading you again one more day. It's like, okay, God, I can do that. I can do that. What's he calling you to do? When I was, uh, when I was back when I was your age, um, I went to Eastern. Went, first, I went to ICC, and then I transferred to EIU. Any other ICC people in here? Oh, come on. They don't tend to be a very proud bunch, but it's okay. ICC is a great place. Um, but I, when I transferred to Eastern, I was involved in a campus ministry much like this, just a little bit smaller. And, uh, and it was transforming for me. It really, really was. I would say we were probably of a group of 125, 150 students. I met um, most of my best friends in that entire season of my life. I met in that context. And there was one dude named Aaron. Um, he, he was in charge of a leadership team that's sort of like Adore is for us, okay? But he led a prayer ministry thing. Like, he, you know, it was his job to kind of help other students get involved in, and to pray. And he said, you know what? I'm going to start, I, I want to start a prayer thing where uh, we're going to meet on Fridays at 6 a.m., and we're going to pray for the campus. And I think all thinking people at that moment were like, oh, good luck. <laughs> like, God bless you in that endeavor. That sounds great. I mean, as a friend of Aaron's, I was like, dude, I love you. I do not want to wake up at six o'clock in the morning to meet you at a campus pavilion somewhere and pray. And he's like, I really feel like that's what God is pulling us to do. So that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what we did. 
I, I was there a lot of weeks. I wasn't there every week, but we started meeting on Friday mornings to pray with each other. Sometimes people would, you know, drag in an acoustic guitar and we would do worship together. And sometimes that was four people and sometimes it was 25. And so we'd watch the sun come up and they were some cold mornings. I mean, eventually it got so cold, like today, that we had to move, you know, inside and start meeting other places. And you guys, revival started happening in our group. We had 52 people get baptized that year in a group of like 130, 150 students. And we just watched God start breaking down walls and we watched addictions start falling off of people. And that, so, so, you know, you hear that and you're like, oh, Ben, so you're saying that prayer meeting was the cause? No, it doesn't, God doesn't work like that where he's like, oh, you, he's not a vending machine. You put your nickel in and you're like, oh yeah, if you wake up at six o'clock in the morning, I'll bring revival. No, all of us woke up to the fact that God was doing something. And can I tell you something, Encounter? If revival is to come here, it won't be, I, I really don't believe it'll be through me. I'm going to continue to pray about how to preach the word for you. I'm gonna to continue to be obedient in that. We're gonna to continue to show up and worship. I think the revival comes when God does something through you, where there is a fire lit in you that's like, I, I need God is pulling me toward doing this. God is pulling me toward laying this thing down that has been a hindrance to me. God is pulling me toward investing in, you name it. I think revival comes when you build on that foundation with the thing that God pulls you to do, and I think it will start happening. Man, I would love to see those torches being lit all over the place. They already are. You see them, you see whispers of them there. But what would happen if that goes from being a dozen of us to 50 of us? to 150 of us, to 300 of us. You guys, this campus would know the name of Jesus, that would know his love and his grace and forgiveness. It would be transformative. And the moment that I say that, I know there's a piece of you, whether you would say it out loud or not, that says, I can't. I'm not. Yeah, you are. Because it's not about your limitations. It's about God not having limitations. And him saying, if I can speak through Moses, I can speak through you, if you let me. And I believe God wants to take us there. I believe he wants to take you there. This isn't a hype message, you understand? This isn't just a pep rally. I want to plant this seed in your brain that this is the thing that the God of the universe desires to do. And if you will take off the handcuffs that you have put on yourself, he will do it. He just won't do that part for you. Let me pray. I do not understand, Father, why you give us such an incredible invitation, but I'm grateful that you do. And so for every soul that's represented in this place, uh, Jesus, I pray that you'd meet us uniquely. I, you're, you're here because you're present in the hearts of your people. So I don't have to ask you to come but I do pray that uniquely you would speak and lead. I pray that uniquely you would help us to lay things down at your feet. I pray uniquely you would help us to learn lessons from this turning point in Moses' life where his begrudging willingness ended up being enough. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd be released to do the kind of work on this campus you want to do in the lives of your people. Bring revival, Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.